This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is USDA Undersecretary Robert Bonney. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta's ambition is to care for the planet and help safely feed the world. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with USDA's Robert Bonney next. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta's ambition is to help safely feed the world while taking care of the planet. Syngenta's working to improve the sustainability, quality, and safety of agriculture with world-class science and innovative crop solutions. Learn more at Syngenta.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Much speculation has been given to the USDA's role in carbon markets and climate-smart practices for U.S. farmers. With many private industry programs already underway and a growing interest in solutions for climate change, USDA Undersecretary Robert Bonney believes the U.S. Department of Agriculture has a crucial role to play. One piece is USDA provides a lot of important data, science, that may be in the background, but I think it's important to, to agriculture. And so that's one piece that I think the government has an important role. We obviously have incentive programs through, you know, our Farm Bill Conservation Programs and others that can help incentivize producers, landowners to undertake climate smart practices. I think that's really important. I think there are producers out there that can, can benefit from those programs, can, um, can, can find some ways to integrate uh, practices into their operations, and that's, I think that benefits benefits all of us. You know, we've also stepped out recently with this partnerships for climate smart commodities. And in this case, what we're trying to do is encourage groups of producers to work together to deploy climate smart practices across their operations, and then to measure and monitor those things. And we're providing resources to basically help them pay for it. We all know that. Climate smart practices can be good agricultural practices as well from a productivity standpoint, but they also sometimes have costs associated with them. And there's a lot of interest in markets, whether it's for carbon or for a climate smart soybean or, or folks interested in greening their supply chain. And what we're trying to do is de-risk this for agriculture, is to, to help pay for it so that folks are willing to step up. We can hopefully scale these practices more broadly. And we can also learn by doing, and that's part of the part of the idea here is to do a bunch of pilots. And so I think there's some really important learning, and I think USDA plays an important role there in in sort of removing the uh, the risk for a lot of folks in agriculture. There was a time that there was a discussion about a carbon bank and discussion about whether CCC funds could be used for that. Is there a place for a USDA pilot that would compensate farmers? Or is it more now, uh, I almost want to ask the, from the perspective of preventing snake oil so that we know exactly what the person who's writing the check would receive from the landowner or the steward of the soil? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two parts here. One is is that I think we, we've we tried to, over the last year, do as much listening as we could. We, we have a public comment period last spring. We did it again this fall, and what you see from the partnerships program 
is the you know the the initial idea that started off as an opportunity to use some flexible dollars in the CCC, and you've seen us through the the work we've done with agriculture, the listening we've done, um, you've seen up come up with the this this program partnerships for for climate smart commodities, and so you know that that's it, it, we wanted to build something that had agriculture and forestry's fingerprints on it, and and that's why this program looks the way it does. The question about, and I think it's a really important one about, what do standards look like going forward? Do you know what is a climate smart commodity, or more broadly, how do we make sure that the methodologies for measuring carbon or greenhouse gas, um, greenhouse gases in agriculture and forestry, are both accurate and scientifically based, but also are reasonable in the sense that that they're that producers can undertake them, that we're not creating such a high standard that it's not cost-effective. And this question of standards is going to be important when going forward. I think in the short term, we hope through these pilots and the partnerships program that we'll learn some things and it may inform our thinking about what role does USDA have to play with producers in agriculture in, you know, Helping, helping them navigate through the market to understand the different standards and those things. And there may be a point at some time in the future where, you know, USDA has a, takes a more proactive role there. But I think whatever we do on the standards side, we want to make sure that, that we're being responsive to the needs of agriculture, being responsive to the needs of forestry, and that, that the, that in some senses we're having a conversation here about how to, how does USDA partner with agriculture and forestry? How do we partner with the private sector to drive more deployment of climate smart practices to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but to do it in a way that actually works for agriculture and is good for agriculture's bottom line? How does your search through this uh, program, the Climate Smart Commodities, how does that search pair with work that's already been done? For example, the National Corn, uh, Corn Growers and the Soil Health Partnership that they, they employed for a few years. Yeah, our hope here is that there are existing programs just like that one with the corn growers and others where folks will see opportunity here and they may want, they may want to take those existing efforts and scale them up, take them to, to more farmers, more regions to think about how they do a better job of uh, measuring, monitoring, verifying the, the outcomes associated with carbon sequestration or other things associated with that. So, we anticipate that there'll be folks that come forward with existing efforts. We also think that there are going to be will- folks that are willing to step forward, try some new things, some some um, step into some new areas, and we want to encourage that innovation. And we also want to, um, you know, we want to recognize we've got learning to do here, and actually allow you know creating some resources for folks out, out there to 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 go do some learning and to figure out how do we how do we scale up these practices, but do it in a way that is actually to the benefit of agriculture and folks can integrate into their, into their existing operations. And I think that's a, that's a, creek, a, a key question and one that I think our, our efforts will help. I think I'm opening Pandora's box here, but it's a question that needs to be asked. What about farmers that have already embraced climate practices, and how do you address that? Yeah, it's a really important question, and it's a really important question from the standpoint of both just being 
equitable across everybody to reward producers that, 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 that have done good things. But also you don't want to create perverse incentives. You don't want to create perverse incentives for people to go out and undo things and so they can, so they can redo them. So this is a really important question. One of the things we've done in the, in the context of the partnerships program is to allow for those early adopters to be rewarded. So if you tie all the benefits just to how much carbon someone can sequester in their soil or greenhouse gases they can they can reduce, if they've already done a bunch of practices, they may be limited in how much more they could do to, to reduce, you know, greenhouse gases or to store more carbon. But this program ties, uh, you know, the benefits to the production of climate-smart commodities. And because of that, because people who've already been doing these things for a while, they can still produce and are producing climate-smart commodities. So we've designed this so that those early adopters can be integrated into this. And I think as we look at other programs outside the partnerships program, whether it's CSP or other things, we need to understand the importance of you know, recognizing what agriculture has already done and, and making sure that you know, we, we recognize that, reward it, and don't create perverse incentives by, you know, not understanding that the, the risks that these early adopters took on. So let's talk about the very foundation, the mission of the program overall, or the goal of the program. Should it be to allow all or the most amount of farmers and stewards to participate, or should the program be geared in such a way that the goal is sequestering the absolute most amount of carbon. So I think we want to, as we put together these pilots and look at the the portfolio of, of proposals that come in, I think it's important that we construct a portfolio that ref- is broadly reflective of agriculture. That is, we you know. Corn and soybeans, fruits and vegetables, forestry, wheat, other folks that we, we allow broad participation. Um, I think that's important for, we're going to learn some things. And I think, you know, if you, if you look at what we need agriculture to do, agriculture to do to step up over the, you know, coming decades, we're going to need broad participation. And so I think early on, Encouraging that broad participation is going to be um, really important. Are there some crop types, livestock operations, forestry operations that are going to provide uh, significant and maybe significantly more climate benefits? Yes, of course. Productivity across lands varies, and because it varies, that means the land's ability to sequester carbon or otherwise protect, help the climate is, is, is variable as well. But I think at least early on, I don't think our only consideration should be how much how much carbon can we suck out of the atmosphere. I think we need to we need to recognize that we need to build a broad approach here which can work for a lot of folks in agriculture. And over time, you know, part of the idea here is to spur private investment into agriculture. And it may be that over time private investment flows to those places where where they think they can get the most bang for the buck from the standpoint of greenhouse gases. But I do think there's going to be a lot of that investment that's also interested in just the folks that they're that they're buying product from, or the people in their supply chain, dependent of, you know independent of how much carbon they may sequester, greenhouse gases they may reduce. I think they're going to want to they're going to value that the the application of climate smart practices. So I do think there's an argument for for being 
for looking beyond just how much carbon we can get out of the atmosphere early on. A related question, there's a lot of emphasis on cover crops, but cover crops don't work in every region of the country. Uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all, but uh, how do you find a size that fits in every region of the country? So that's exactly right. And, you know, we've done some things both through RMA to encourage uh, cover crops as well as uh, NRCS, the EQIP program, uh, to advance cover crops. Cover crops are an important, um, important practice for a bunch of producers, but they're not going to work for everybody. There's no question about that. And I think our job is to build a toolbox in partnership with agriculture and forestry that we make sure we've got a broad set of tools in there that can that is responsive to to all of agriculture and all of forestry. There are going to be some producers that are really interested more in the resilience, resilience to drought or extreme weather, or those types of issues. They may be less interested in in you know climate smart practices for uh, climate mitigation. And that's fine. I think our job, though, is to build a, a toolbox that works for agriculture, recognizing that over the long term, agriculture has a really important role to play as the U.S. looks to, you know, reducing its greenhouse gas emissions across all sources. I realize we're early in the game, but there are some specific questions that surface. So what about wheat? Years ago, this was a cover crop, and now it's worth almost $10 a bushel. But it is harvested at a point that doesn't necessarily fit the description of a cover crop, but yet there's a lot of double crop soybeans planted uh, behind wheat, especially on the east side of the Mississippi. Where does wheat fit in? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, you were getting at earlier the need to think about developing <laughs> programs that, that work for everybody, and wheat wheat is a good example. Wheat, you know, we've got a lot of acres, obviously, in wheat. It has a potentially important role to play. There are things that they can do on the nutrient side, nitrogen fertilizer and other things, that actually could be really important as well. And so, again, our job is to, is to listen to agriculture and is to build a, you know, a, a set of tools that actually is responsive to, um, uh, to different cropping uh, types, to different uh, lands. I mean, you know, uh, corn in South Carolina is very different than corn in, in, uh, in Iowa or elsewhere. And so we've got to build a, a set of tools that recognizes that, uh, that variability and that allows some flexibility for, uh, for, uh, producers and landowners to adapt. Mr. Undersecretary, over the past week, the House Ag Committee holding a hearing on Title I, and I'm gonna, some farm program challengers have already been noted saying that Title I programs and crop insurance really did little to sequester carbon. They reason that in the name of climate, those dollars might be better spent. So here's the question. How do you balance the need for a secure food supply, risk management for farmers, with the need to sequester carbon and carbon-smart agricultural programs? So it is a critical question. We look out on the climate side, you often hear people looking out to 2050 and the the goal to be net zero by 2050 across the entire uh, U.S. economy with respect to greenhouse gas emissions. And we often talk about the importance of feeding 9 to 10 billion people uh, globally uh, by 2050 as well. We've got to do both. And so it turns out that productivity really matters. They ain't making any more land. we got a, a stable or declining land base. 
And so we've got to we've got to figure out how to uh, deploy climate smart practices while we continue to increase the the productivity of those lands. We have to do one, uh, uh, those two things at once. They're actually linked. So our ability to produce agricultural products here reduces pressure in other parts of the world to you know, increase agricultural production into rainforests or other places where there are significant greenhouse gas uh, emissions associated with that. So the trick in all this is actually to to be is to maintain productivity even while we reduce emissions. And so that means technology, precision agriculture, um, you know, uh, new seed technology. Uh, new practices, all that stuff um, is going to matter, and we need to encourage it. This is about, you know, in places it's going to be about sustainable intensification and and having a, a vision that both embraces productivity and climate-smart agriculture and recognizing we need to be innovative and there's an, there's an opportunity for technology there, I think it's really important. So based on your experience in agriculture, this question how important is technology and the use of existing and new opportunities from technology to the sustainability goals and productivity goals of the country? I think it's going to be vital. If you think about think about just the you know the, the um, issues related to livestock, there are new feed additives that could significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions associated with with livestock production. U.S. livestock is already more efficient than than much of the livestock in, in, in and around the world. We produce, um, you know, we're able to produce meat at a much lower greenhouse gas footprint than other parts of the world, and that productivity and that efficiency is really, really important. And part of it is genetics and technology, and, it, and if you think about feed additives or other opportunities to take methane and, and turn it into renewable um, uh, biogas or other opportunities, that's going to be really important. There are new seed technologies that, can enhance the ability of crops to sequester carbon in the soil. There's going to be a lot of opportunities uh, just like those or others that involve, you know, precision ag and, and use of those tools that are going to be really, really important. And I think we want to, um, you know, we want a, a vision here that embraces that technology and that recognizes that technology is integral to us meeting our, our climate goals as well as our, our need to produce food and fiber. Can the U.S. justify additional acres in the Conservation Reserve Program with now such global and domestic demand for fiber, for feed grains, and for oil seeds? And of the CREP program with the additional partners now approved, uh, does that change your outlook for numbers? So I think, uh, you know, the Conservation Reserve Program is a vital program from the standpoint of of wildlife and water and carbon sequestration and, and a lot of really important goals. I think the trick with CRP is to make sure we get the best acres in, into the program. And, and by that I mean it's a program for marginal lands, flood-prone lands, and those lands. And I think there's ample room to get those acres in. And the question is how do we make sure we get the best portfolio of lands in there? Um, I don't think anybody wants to take the you know the best quality corn land in Iowa or elsewhere and put it in that program. It's not that's not what that program is, is designed to do. I do think there are enormous opportunities on marginal lands and I think you're you know you're the part of the question that asks about CREP and some of these targeted practices can, I think can be a really important um, 
uh, part of the, the menu here where we make sure we get the most sensitive lands in, the lands where there's the most public benefit in terms of putting in them into some conservation cover. And so, you know, I, I do think there's a, an opportunity here to, to have our cake and eat it too if we get the incentives right and if we make sure that, you know, the lands that go in are, are uh, not only producing significant value from a water or climate or, or wildlife standpoint, um, but are also, you know, marginal lands that, that uh, maybe should not have been put in production in the first place. Well, March is an awfully busy month, and there are a number of producers that have a trip to the local FSA office uh, on their list. Is your staff ready for the deluge, and are there other elements electronically or otherwise that we can help to manage the work that's in front of you with the decisions that are still going on right now? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. March is, a, is an important month for, for a range of programs. We've moved very quickly to uh, reopen offices as the data has allowed us to do that. We have an incident management team that gives us daily reports on uh, uh, COVID-19 by county, and we've moved very aggressively to reopen offices. The vast majority of our offices right now are at 75% staffing, and and you know, that's critically important for producers needing, needing to go in and, and, and talk to folks. Um, but your question also is more broadly, what can we do once we're well beyond COVID to think about um, how do we make sure, you know, we, we make uh, enrolling our programs easier? How do we streamline them? How do we use, how do we create better uh, IT systems that allow producers um, to, um, you know, to interact with USDA more easily? This is part of the equity question you just asked as well. How do we how do we take farm loans and make it easier for folks to access through the internet or or, uh, or other ways? And I think this is a longer term issue. I don't need to tell you it's been with USDA for a while, but it's a high priority. And I think we need to um, you know we need to make those investments that that will allow uh, make it easier for farmers to interact with USDA whether they go into the office or, or do it from their their computer at home. Undersecretary Bonnie, thank you for standing in front of some of these tough questions in our discussion today. Thank you for your time. This is Open Mic, thank and you. today, sir, you've got the last word. Well, it's, it's great to be with you, and, and uh, you know, I think um, this conversation points out there are a lot of uh, weighty questions uh, facing all of us related to climate and equity and other things. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity. And, you know, it's a, it's a great time to be in agriculture and forestry. And, and uh, we've got some great challenges, but we've got, we got a bunch of folks with their shoulder to the wheel. And I'm, I'm, I'm confident in our ability to produce results for the American people. Our thanks to USDA Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, Robert Bonney, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta's ambition is to care for the planet and help safely feed the world. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.